Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour of sciencey stuff with us, the Lost in Science team. My name is Stu and with me as usual I have Claire. Hello Stu. Hi. Hi. And I also have Chris. Well hello there. Hi. Now Claire, what amazing and possibly baffling science story have you brought in for us this week? Well, I don't know about baffling, but um, certainly this is probably something that we have all had to deal with at some point in our life. And unfortunately, a lot of our friends, our families, our colleagues across the sort of East Coast have been dealing with on a more regular basis, and that is mold. Mm. Mold, 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 mold in the house, mold growing all over the curtains, mold everywhere because of the weather that has been happening and the flooding and the just constant humidity that has been happening. This is like a, a side effect of the La Nina season that we've been having, I guess. There's so much more water that the mold has yeah. sprung up all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the mold is there all the time. You know, it is, um, it's, it, it, it hasn't been brought by the rain. It's just the environmental conditions have changed. So I'm going to talk a bit about that mould, what it is, what it means if it's in your house and what you can do to protect yourself. Uh, so it's always there mouldering away, but it's, <laughs> it's doing it in a much more present fashion at the moment. It sure is. And... Chris, what have you got for us this week? Well, speaking of, I guess, you know, scary black things that you don't want, like on the walls of your house, black holes I'm talking about yet again. <laughs> uh, you may have seen, like, yeah, the like astronomical uh, black holes. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that Venn diagram of mould and black holes is, you know. Well, I've seen the black mould is like the, the scary mould that we're going to worry about mm, mm. yeah i don't think uh black holes are all that common on the walls of people's houses though are they well you know uh, not this one not this one in fact uh, <laughs> this one is fairly unique so yeah i actually talked about black holes uh, a few weeks ago um but i talked about just like your really kind of small everyday run-of-the-mill black holes where a big star goes supernova and the remnants turn you know collapses in on itself but there are also the supermassive black holes found at the centre of galaxies. And you've probably seen in the news recently that there was another photo of one of these black holes released by the Event Horizon Telescope. And you think, oh yeah, we've seen them before, but this is special because this is the black hole at the centre of our very own Milky Way galaxy. It's your local black hole. It's local enough, yeah, it might not be the closest black hole in our galaxy, but it is certainly the biggest black hole in our galaxy. Um, wouldn't want this on the walls of your house, but you probably wouldn't notice if it was, because you have other <laughs> things to worry about. Anyway, so yeah, I'm going to be talking about uh, this particular black hole and the, how they took the photo and what we have learnt from it and what you can um, what you can learn and apply in your own life. Not really, but uh, hey, everything's got a practical <laughs> use somewhere. Well... Uh, black holes and black moulds are coming up on Lost in Science. Stay tuned.
Okay, yes, we are lost in science. We're talking about the latest uh, sensational black hole photo released by the Event Horizon Telescope, so named because it takes pictures of Event Horizons. Now, this being radio might sound a bit tricky to be talking about a photo, but um, look, I am going to, you know, hold this up to you guys to have a look and you can, oh, I guess, yeah. describe what you see in this, in this particular black hole picture. I mean, to me, it looks like a you know really white hot donut you know with a red with red around the edges but three parts of that donut are hotter and whiter than than the rest okay thank you all for your wonderful assessment now let's <laughs> un unpack this a little bit so this um this black hole like i said in the introduction it is not just any black hole it is uh, our galaxy's very own supermassive black hole it has the mass of four million suns I just wanted to to ask, you said it was a photo. Is it actually a photograph because a photograph is made of light or is it using other forms of radiation to make the picture? Well, that is a, a very good question. It is actually not light as such. It is radio waves. It's very high frequency radio waves. Um, uh, very short wavelength, uh, 1.3 millimeter waves they are. And... There are many reasons for using um, that that particular kind of technology. Um, one is that, uh, well, it allows you to basically make a telescope the size of the Earth by doing that. Because with uh, radio waves, radio telescopes, you can do this thing called very long baseline interferometry. Um, I was going to talk about this later in my story. This is like the technical part. So um, we're just going to launch straight into this. Um, essentially, if you have two radio telescopes and you sync them up, you can detect the same signal with them. And essentially, as I said, you're basically acting as if you've got a, a dish or an array that is however far apart those are. And in this particular project, the Event Horizon Telescope, they used eight radio telescopes across the globe. And essentially, yeah, got an Earth-sized radio telescope to get wow. a, a picture of this thing. As I said, this, this thing is big. It is four million times the mass of the sun. Um, and is quite large as astronomical objects go. I mean, black holes are famously very dense, you know, kind of the densest thing I suppose you can get. But um, being so massive, it is quite large. However, it's also a long way away from it. That picture there, that glowing donut, is um, like it fits within the orbit. If it was in our solar system, it would fit within the orbit of Mercury. So it's you know on cosmic scales it's not huge and so um it's about twenty six thousand six hundred light years away at the center of our galaxy and um it's a very kind of small thing to be looking at at that distance does it have a name this um supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy uh it is known as sagittarius a star um a asterisk like the star um, Sagittarius, a star. That sort no, of seems quite. Sagittarius, <laughs> a star. Like Sagittarius, I mean, a, and then a little asterisk after the a. It sort of seems misleading. Well, okay. So basically, it is as the name suggests. It is in the constellation Sagittarius, kind of just um, on the edge of Sagittarius and the tail of the next constellation along, which is Scorpius. Uh, not Scorpio, by the way. Scorpio is the astrological sign the actual constellation is called scorpius because okay thanks the, for that aside the sides of the zodiac are all rubbish anyway um 
so it's kind of in between those, but it's, it belongs more to Sagittarius. And essentially this powerful radius source detected in the constellation Sagittarius, they called it Sagittarius A, um, because normally they name the stars and the objects in a constellation after, say, Greek letters and stuff like that. But this one is Sagittarius A. It's a different alphabet, I suppose, they're using. And the A star is because this is the specific object that is this black hole that is emitting the radio waves. So, um, yeah, but anyway, so it is a long way away. And um, getting this picture has been likened to, uh, like, it looks a bit like a donut. It's been likened to seeing a donut on the moon, like an actual mm. donut on the moon. Or someone also said, if you're in Berlin, you'd be looking at bubbles in a beer in New York. Or I think someone else said that if you suck your hand out at arm's length, it'd be like being able to see an atom in your hand. Wow. So this is incredible resolution of achieving there. And that picture is kind of this kind of weird, fuzzy, glowing orange thing. It's kind of fuzzy because very low resolution and they sort of smoothed it out. Um, so the actual thing would probably in real life be a bit more well-defined. But, you know, it's a long way away. Give us a break. There's probably a whole lot of other stuff in between us and the black hole that's in that picture. So... Is that also contributing to it being fuzzy and hard to see? Well, not so much, actually. Um, so the centre of the galaxy, I mean, you probably noticed the, Mil the Milky Way galaxy is so named because, not because it's a sweet you can eat between meals without ruining your appetite, but because it is kind of this milky band across the sky. Um, and if you've seen pictures of, like, you know, spiral galaxies, they have this big bulge in the middle. And you don't actually see that when you look in the sky. And the reason is because there is a lot of stuff getting in the way. There's a lot of gas and dust in our galaxy that obscures our view of the center. Um, you might have heard about the emu in the sky, have you? In of course, yeah. First um, Nations astronomy? Yep, yep, absolutely. It's kind of like an, an emu um, that you can see, but it's it's dark. It's like the, the dark parts of the sky as opposed to the stars. So the center of the galaxy is basically in the body of the emu. Oh, is it? Yeah. So there's all this gas and dust in the way. But this is the other reason for using the radio waves because they penetrate uh, that stuff very well. And it's kind of, they get through it quite easily. So that's not as much of a problem for the radio waves. What is more of a problem for this one is that, um, so this stuff glows because it's basically, it's the stuff that's kind of orbiting the black hole very very quickly very very rapidly close to the speed of light and so it's actually quite dynamic things move and change very quickly so it is actually hard to get a good picture and one of the um one of the um the projects for the uh, the uh event horizon telescope is that they are they're gathering more data like this photo was taken from data gathered back in april 2017 i think it was um, and they have since gathered more data and they're trying to make a movie essentially of mm. this thing because it changes in about, I think half an hour, roughly it changes the, the shape of it and it moves around so much. So it's actually is, doesn't sit still to get a good picture really. Um, so they're hoping to make a bit of a movie bit with a high resolution so you can see what is actually going on. Um, but yeah, at the moment it's just kind of a fuzzy donut. Those, um, those three bright spots that you see, as you pointed out, Stu, I believe they're actually artifacts of the imaging process. They're not actual, um, bright spots in the, in the accretion disk. But, you know, we, we're not going to know for sure until we get a, a clearer picture, really. So it should look more, look more like a consistent 
band of light donut than Pro- those three points. Probably, but, but the fact that it's moving around, we have to see some changes in it, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a bit different to the the previous one, which was in a different galaxy, which was M87 star, the star for the black hole. Um, and that one had a definite bright spot on one side, and that's because the way it was rotating was dragging the light around and causing that bright spot. Whereas this one, Sagittarius A star, is kind of more facing towards us. It's kind of at an angle less than 40 degrees, kind of, is facing us. So it's a bit like the Eye of Sauron. I've got all the analogies here. Um, oh, yeah. staring at us from the center <laughs> of the galaxy. So apart from, you know, us being visual creatures and being able to see a black hole is like pretty mind-blowing for us and incredible and, um, you know, especially when at the center of our galaxy, are there any other uh, things that um, astrophysicists and cosmologists can sort of, um, can, can take from these images? Yeah, well, again, we're going to need a, a better picture, really. Um, and a lot, there's a lot of calculations going to trying to make sense of this thing. Um, so this is just a starting point. But, um, you know, we can see exactly how dynamic it is. As I said, it is quite dynamic because it's relatively small as supermassive black holes go. But um, it's not apparently not as dynamic as they anticipated. Um, you know, we think of black holes as sucking in everything around them. This one has been likened to if it was a person, it would be eating a single grain of rice every million years. So it's not actually eating that much. So yeah, we're learning things like that. Um, the one, the previous photo from M87, that uh, they have since basically been able to take the polarization of the light and trying to work out the magnetic fields around it by looking at how the magnetic fields are affected by the black hole how you can try and work out whether it's spinning or not you can try and work out what gravity is doing to the light and the forces and things around it so there is there is still quite a bit to learn there's a lot black holes are so extreme that there's a lot that we don't know about them or that is kind of up in the air and yeah being able to see one lets us answer some of those questions hopefully um, look, if you want to see it yourself, obviously you can't because it's a long way away. Like I said, it's like a donut on the moon. Um, but if you want to know where it is, as I said, it is kind of between the constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpius. Um, we are currently at the end of May in Southern and we are recording in Southern Australia. So where we are, it rises about 6pm in the Southeast um, and will be directly overhead around 2am. Uh, so, you know, if you're in an area where you can see the Milky Way, you can look straight up at two o'clock in the morning and you will know that there is this glowing donut um, staring back at you somewhere. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist. Who are you? Who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. So something that our East Coast friends have become very familiar with in recent times is, of course, torrential rain, rainy weather, floods, and the inevitable appearance of mould in their houses. Uh, I know... um, you know, friends that I have in Sydney just sent, have sent me many photos of mold growing on their jackets, on their shoes, on their bags. Um, and for people who live in the tropics, mold for you 
is a you know general wet season occurrence. It sort of happens like clockwork. But for a lot of the East Coast, um, it is the result of La Nina and increased rainfalls and flooding that's brought this unwelcome visitor um, in, well, I mean, not into our houses, but created conditions that make it conducive to grow in such large quantities in our houses all across the eastern seaboard. I mean, mould is really everywhere. I mean, you know, Stu, you you deal with mould on a... You have been known to deal with mould on a regular basis, so much so that you studied it. Well, yeah, I was, I was studying fungi for a long time but it was uh symbiotic fungi so it was yeah. it was beneficial to the plants that it um grew with but i still you know there was no uh there's no conferences to go to for symbiotic fungi we had to go to pathogen conferences so every oh, other the every other researcher was talking about you know killer molds that would kill plants and various other things yeah. so yeah it was it was a very uh a very moldy time so, I mean, there's a couple of things from what you just said. A, mould is a fungus. And B, um, you know, mould can be a really scary thing. And when it's in your house, it can be scary as well. So today I'm just going to talk a little bit about mould, what it is, how it affects us, what we can do about it. Um, and also just want to give a special shout out to anyone who is suffering with ongoing mould situations in their house because it sounds like it would be... Just sounds awful. Just sounds really bad. Um... So yeah, it is a fungus and it grows in the form of multicellular filaments. Um, and these filaments are called hyphae. So um, there are a lot of different types of molds out there as you alluded to, they are a super diverse um, group of living organisms. And you've probably encountered a lot of different molds in your life. Some of which have, you know, a dusty texture like the molds that grow on fruit um, and this dusty texture is the asexual spores um, and the mode of formation the shape of these spores is traditionally um, how they classify molds so you know on one hand molds can be scary on the other hand molds can play quite an important part um, not only in the ecosystem but in biotechnology and food science they can be in the production of different pigments, foods, beverages, antibiotics, of course, pharmaceuticals and enzymes. Yes. I was going to ask, like, yeah, isn't like penicillin was and like a lot of antibiotics, all of that, these famous uh, medicines were originally moulds. And does this mean that some moulds are good? It's, yeah. This means that, um, you know, moulds have found a way to combat um other pathogens like bacteria right okay. so um we can we can borrow um from molds in our biotechnology also cheese i mean i mean some moldy cheese you don't want to eat like yeah. you get your, your your craft kind of cheddar with it's you know blue spots in it you tend not to eat that <laughs> it's not that that's not the sort of blue cheese that you want no, is it no. yeah the cheese the words deliberately uh, introduced to the cheese, that's that's a different story. They yeah, say, yeah. "Hey, mold, this is cheese. Cheese meat mold." <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, but today we're really talking about the types of molds that degrade natural materials, the ones that can get into your damp and water damaged environments, and in some cases can be toxic 
um, and release spores that can cause all sorts of health problems. Uh, now, yeah, as I was saying, molds are part of the ecosystem and there are always molds in every house. You know, you've, you've got molds all around you. They are part of, um, you know, the microbiome of your, of, of, of where and how you live. But um, what they do need is dampness to grow. And, um, and they can, and you know, high levels of humidity and they can affect everything from clothing to furniture. And you'll notice uh, mold in your house growing noticeably, you know, you see them as sort of like stains or smudges or discolored patch often in sort of like, you know, growing the typical black mold that, that you see growing on walls and whatnot. But interestingly, um, mold can also be harder to find so you know you might have a have a mold infestation behind furniture in the back of wardrobes inside wall cavities um it's 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 not always visible the mold that you might have it tends to grow in the dark um in sort of spaces that are in a building so you might not be able to see it and if you can't smell it it can be quite difficult to detect uh, and what causes illness in certain species of molds is um, really, I guess, the concentration um, of the mold. And that means that you need to have the conditions right to really have a high concentration of, um, of molds and, and, and the spores that the molds produce. So when the air is humid and not moving around a lot, that's when you've got these sort of damp, uh, humid conditions. And if there's no light, then you've just got, it's just perfect for molds. Now, in order to reproduce molds spawn, yeah, the tiny spore particles, and they're then carried in the air. And these can trigger your, your allergies, your respiratory symptoms, things like nasal congestions, wheezing, um, itchy eyes, coughing. Um, mold can give you asthma. Um, it can exacerbate asthma. It can exacerbate asthma and it can keep your asthma going or have it turned chronic yeah is, is it only is it only people who are allergic to the mold who get those responses or can they trigger those in people who aren't specifically allergic to the mold and just the actual because they're just tiny little particulate uh you know bits in the air so i mean people can sneeze when they get dust up their nose it's kind of yeah. like dust and yeah yeah um that's a that's an interesting question from what i read um people are more susceptible to allergic reactions and respiratory and asthmatic um uh sort of flaring up from mold spores um some are more um susceptible to than others and it does have a you know your environment your genetics your age and also sort of, you know, how your immune system is and if you're immunocompromised can all um, can all affect how how mold spores are going to going to affect you. But um, this one thing that I read suggested that around 40% of people are um, potentially susceptible to these sorts of allergens, which I thought was quite high. Really? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you think about how common mold can be in houses 
Um, and then in addition to the respiratory issues, mold exposure, it's been linked to something called a biotoxin related illness. It's a um, chronic inflammatory response syndrome or CIRS. And it's a progressive um, multi-system illness and it's characterized by exposure to biotoxins like the spores um, and reported symptoms are headaches, chronic fatigue, mood swings, allergies and night sweats. Now, from what I understand, and I'm no expert obviously, but the um, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, it's not a widely recognized medical condition. Um, and some doctors treat it with some suspicion, but there has been a parliamentary inquiry into it. And the fact that there's not a lot of research into the health effects of mold, there's not a lot of re research into this um, chronic inflammatory syndrome. Um, so this lack of evidence to show whether there is this sort of um, causal relationship between the exposure to the spores and then these sort of unexplained complex symptoms, it just isn't there. So, so researchers and experts are really, I guess, trying to advocate for more research and more funding to be um, delivered to this particular area of health um, and really make it a priority. But um, interestingly, also after what everything we've just said, the World Health Organization estimates that mold affects between, and this is pretty wide, between 10 and 50% of homes in Australia. So does that just mean they, they don't know? Like 10 to 50%, between 10 and 50% seems like a really wide range to me. Maybe they mean at any given time, it may be 10 to 50% are being Maybe. affected. It does sound like they just don't know, yeah. It yeah. sounds to me like, it. yeah, I mean, certainly during what we've seen over the last four or five months, it would be more than 50%, I, I would say, but, yeah. Um, but in, interestingly, this disproportionately affects low-income communities as well, so that's, you know, that's another factor to take into account. So, um yeah, well-designed, well-maintained homes. Um, that's that's what that's what we need to aim for if we want to try and prevent mold. Um, and preventing mold is more efficient than removing mold. Uh, so trying to keep your house dry and free of dust, trying to fix leaks, including roofs and walls, um, and plumbing appliances correctly, increasing ventilation with fans using a dehumidifier um, and cleaning condensation and all that sort of stuff. It's incredibly important. Um, and then there are also some great recipes for vinegar and um, bleach concoctions um, on the internet. If you just search and you know, all the government websites have a lot of great recipes for mold busters, mm. but you do have to get all the spores. Um, from when when you're removing mold it's not just as easy as sort of like killing the spores you actually have to remove them so you have to use quite a lot of I imagine like cloths and paper towels and stuff like that to actually remove the spores because they won't they won't um, they won't just up and die you don't want to spread them around in the cleaning process either like if you just wipe them you just yeah. want to spread them yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah um, so yeah Heart goes out to everyone who's dealing with mould at the moment, but hopefully, um, hopefully we'll get some 
some dry weather and, um, you know, you'll live a life less mouldy soon. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.